Have you ever suffered a traumatic event? Do you feel you've been able to grow from it, get through it? If you would like to learn more about what it takes to grow from adversity, attend the full-day conference on the science and practice of post-traumatic growth April 29th at Sacramento State University's Harper Alumni Center from 8.30 to 4 p.m. A panel of experts will present tactics and tools to transform adversity and trauma into confidence and strength through the development of resilience, compassion, and post-traumatic growth. Hear Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn address her course, MetaHabit Sac State, and learn from the presentation of keynote speaker Charles Clark, one of the fastest men in the world. As a mindset expert, he'll teach you how to use adversity to build greater strength, success, and fulfillment. To register, visit metahab.com. That's metahab.com to register for the science and practice of post-traumatic growth at Sac State, April 29th. Live your life better turning trauma into growth. I want everybody to give me one sentence on a takeaway that you have from what we've been doing. And last night, almost to every one of them, they said, not only being grateful, but I feel empowered. I feel empowered. And that to me is, again, I say, this has already been in you. I'm not teaching you anything. I'm just helping you uncover, recognize what is already in you. So it's there. Take control, make good choices, and keep moving forward. Meta is a powerful prefix. Metaphysical, metamorphic, meta-analysis. As an adjective, meta means something more, more comprehensive, or transcendent of whatever the root word is. Metaphysical, for example, is beyond the physical. Well, we now use meta to point to self-awareness more than we ever did. Like when a movie is made about making a movie, we say, it's meta. Hi, I'm Beth Ruiak. I'm in the studio with Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn. Hey, everybody. How are you? In this special episode number two, Meta Habit Sac State, we are expanding our conversation about trauma and trauma recovery. And yes, there is completely a way that that connects to Meta. So Dr. Joyce, take it away. What's the connection? And you're the one that latched on to this concept of Meta in terms of trauma. So as I was looking at the notion of people who have gone beyond restoration, I looked at that. I not only, you know, we talked about this in the first podcast in episode one and bringing that forward in episode two, looking at beyond that, I identified it not only in myself, but what I would see it in patients that I cared for. I would see it in a movie. People went through really traumatic things, and not overnight, but over time, not only did they move beyond habilitation, they thrived, and not in spite of what happened, but as a direct result. So I was just so curious about that, and I, as I kept thinking about words, words are really important to me, mm-hmm. and I kept thinking you know, rehab, 
recovery, that really does not identify what really happens with people. And so throwing it around, bouncing it around with friends of mine, colleagues over several weeks, just kind of chatting about it. One time, one of my colleagues said, you know, actually, you could think of the word meta, you know, Greek for going beyond, moving past. And I said, oh, that's it. That's it. So you take meta, moving beyond, habilitation, restoration. So meta, habilitation is a better definition of what people do all the time. Mm -hmm. And so they move beyond restoration. Again, this is not overnight. This is over time. But it just is a word that I landed upon, just kind of made up basically, to really describe what happens. How long ago did you incorporate oh, meta? Oh, my gosh. And that is like, oh, I. it was even prior to me doing my doctoral work. So that was easily over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So once I had the event I had, went back and got my master's, and I looked at people in my master's who had survived major events, and I just started thinking, did they go through the same thing I had? Had they gone through depression and the guilt and the, I don't know what's going to happen to me and all this kind of thing? And so I identified, yeah, in fact, they had. When I went back into practice... And again, like I said, I started looking at things more openly. That's when the notion of, wait a second, people really do go beyond restoration. And that triggered me into finding a different term. And then that's what drew me into my doctoral work. Side question. You mentioned that you have a fascination with words. Were you always that way, or did that come after your own kind of spell with aphasia when words eluded you? (laughs) That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I've Uh. always been fascinated with the written word. I love that. I've always been fascinated. Very important for me, if I'm using a word, to define it, to know I'm using this word because it directly means this. I probably should have done some research in linguistics because I really love that whole idea of that. But yes, it was very important for me to have clarity around what I was talking about and what I was promoting. You've referenced your own experience, and we'll get to that in a bit, but there are a lot of people who have been tracking this conversation through the first episode, and I want to get right to MetaHab and talk about how this system works. I know for you, it's less about steps. It's more about stages. So would you review those stages? So the reason, let me just like kind of pull this back a little bit. Not only my work, but other people's work, things like that, you see how it evolves over time. Things sort of come into view, and then you go, oh, I I needed to know this piece, and I needed to know this piece, and now I know this piece, and it evolves. And that's what happened with MetaHab. So it started with the word. Then when I went back to do my doctorate, I really wanted to study this concept of people mastering their fate, of thriving. 
And so when I, I was lucky to have a dissertation chair, and I kept saying to him, I want to study this. But I want to know why people do this. Why do people go beyond simple restoration? And he, who, by the way, I'd given him work on another project I was doing, and then just happenstance gave him some work on Metahab, he said to me a couple of things. Number one, this first work you wanted to do on cardiac rehab, that's good stuff. But this Metahab stuff, this is groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. you got to get into that. And then secondly, he said, you know, I don't think you want to know just why people do it. I think you want to know how they do it. And as soon as he said that, I went, that's right. That's right. We want to know what goes beyond that. And so my doctoral research involved listening to people's stories who I had identified as going beyond. My dissertation chair said, I want you to talk about how they grew up, what happened to them, life afterwards. And it was just brilliant because as I listened to these stories over and over and over again from men and women, young and old, different events, I started seeing a pattern. And I said, you know what? People don't do this in a haphazard way. There's a system. And again, speaking with colleagues, one of my colleagues, Dr. Louise Timmer, said, you know, Joyce, I think there's stages there, like the stages of death and dying. And I went, oh, my God, that's it. That's it. So I went back again. I and I eluded different stages. I checked them out with different colleagues. They read different things and said, yeah, I kind of agree with the way you have stages. So Metahab incorporates almost a philosophy as well as a mechanism or clinical pathway that incorporates six stages people go through. Before you go there, am I understanding you right that you observed people organically going through some of the same things, not really realizing this is what they were going through, but it was synchronistic from person to person in their recovery or rehabilitation. Yeah, exactly. So they didn't come to me or they didn't say, oh, yes, I've metahabilitated. I could see in their stories and their behaviors and people I knew, I could see that they had done that. Mm. So when I asked them about it, they weren't even really aware, oh, this is where I'm at. This is what I did. It was bringing them back and pointing out some things. Look at you did this, then you did this, and then you did this, and this is the outcome. And so to me, that's one of the most fun things that I do working with people now is I never tell them, oh, you've done this. I give them the information, and they become aware Hmm. of their capacity and their resilience and all that. And it's such an amazing thing to to see that awakening in them. Yeah, it seems that it would be empowering because we look so hard for progress. We look to see that we're going forward, that we aren't stuck or Mm -hmm. falling backward. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine stage one is some event happened, right? the crisis, the experience, whatever. In stage one, there is or was a trauma. Right. And as we're going through this, Beth, I'd really like the people who are listening to think about these stages. Obviously, I 
identified them with significant trauma. But once you understand what you go through, I want you to start utilizing them even with annoyances and challenges and Mm, things to see how you can go through that. But we'll take it from somebody's major trauma. So stage one is what I call the acute stage. That's when it hits you and you go, oh my gosh, what is happening here? And in that stage, people need to focus on the here and now. That's all I want them to focus on. How am I going to get through day to day to day? Sometimes they'll ask me, well, what's going to happen? I go, there's lots of things that could happen. But for right now, we just want you to get through the day to day, keep alive and keep moving and keep working toward your survival. That's that stage. So somehow a next stage happens then. You can't just sustain that stage one place, something changes. Right. So stage two is what I call turning point. And that's when in the midst of everything they're going through, in the midst of people make a decision to move forward. They might not even identify that or see that in themselves. But when you listen to stories over and over again, I guarantee you'll hear that. Somebody will say, I remember talking to a doctor and I just decided I'm going to do this. I remember getting up in the morning and I just, they will, that'll be there for sure in their stories. And once they make that brave and courageous decision to move forward, that's when stage three comes, which is treatments. And so that's a very busy time for not only them, but family, friends, other people, because they get involved in both complementary and traditional types of treatment. So people will Google or they'll look up different things that they could be doing to help them in their healing progression. And so once they get really involved in that, that's a very busy stage. So I identified stage four as adaptation and acceptance. Now, that is not forever, but sometimes you need to stop and take a rest. The, uh, yeah, for just yeah, a rest and kind of take, where, where am I at? Yeah. What happened? Where am I at? What am I doing? Where do I want to go? It's kind of like I tell people, it's like the kind of rest phase where you have to really take stock of all that's going on and you get, again, making choices and taking control of what you want to do because stage five is getting back into life. Mm. And that is you need to go some way. You got to get back into something, go back to school, get back into whatever job. It may not be the job that you left. Some way of life as a parent, whatever, you really just get back into life. And once you start going through that and you start recognizing this is a really wonderful stage and where people start to become aware of not only what the situation did to them, but also what it did for them. Hmm. And they see life differently. And I cannot tell you how many times in talking to the hundreds of survivors I've talked to, they've said, you know what's weird? I was working so hard to get back into this specific life, this job or whatever. 
And for whatever reason, that either doors were closed or things just weren't going to happen. But I found this ever so more interesting other door that I had never had the courage to go through that door or I'd never thought, oh, maybe I could do that. And yet here it is. So it opens things up for them. And stage six, that's never ending. That's metahab. That's going beyond. That's where people look back and not that they want to revisit what happened to them, not that they even really see it as a gift, but they recognize going through what they went through allowed them to see life in a way they had not seen before, allowed them to recognize their courage, their strength, their resilience, their capacity to move. And what is absolutely key in this stage, and again, they may not say this, but when you hear their story, you'll hear this, they found something to do that provided purpose to their life. Now, when you go through the metahab stage, as I tell people, unfortunately, when you go through one crisis or trauma, that doesn't give you a pass. Meaning you can go through it again. Yes. It may happen again. So again whether in those your life. are adversities, annoyances, other challenges, but now you have a mechanism. Now you have a pattern of behavior that you can re-engage in. So you go back and go, maybe I'm at stage two again. Maybe I had to make that decision. Maybe I'm back at stage three. But it gives people a resource of how to make sense of what's happening. You know, Beth, when I really thought about this in general and people ask this question, here's the thing. People have done this forever. I didn't make up the notion that people go through really bad things and over time not only survive but thrive. That's happened. All I did with MetaHab was give a word and a structure to a pattern of behavior people have incorporated but maybe didn't realize here's a system. And once you put together a system for them, then it's easier to engage with that system and move. Just as you talk about asking questions, though, and researching the patterns in people's experiences, there is now growing evidence and more science that humans do move through all of this. They can go through tragedy and move on to triumph. And I think the understanding is that that's really what metahabilitation is all about. Yeah. I remember when I started really getting into this notion, and it was in the aftermath of me first studying people who had gone through metahab that I found the phrase by Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun about post-traumatic growth. And when I started looking at the literature around that, it became very evident in the literature. The literature guided me to say, we need to take a more balanced view of what happens to people. There is no question that we must research trauma and traumatic experiences on a physical, psychological level, no question. But that has to then be balanced with, well, what about studying people who have, again, mastered their fate? 
why and how did they do that and incorporating that content into treatment protocol for people. That balance has to be there. Side note here, you mentioned your dissertation chair and how influential and important that person was. Do you want to identify Oh, by that's name? awesome. Thank you for mentioning that. So that's Dr. Dean Elias. And honestly, when I went to go do my doctorate, I was given a dissertation chair and that person left. Finally, Dr. Dean Elias was the dissertation chair. And it's so amazing to me how life works because he is the one who got it. He is the one that pushed me. He is the one that really just said, this is where you need to go. And he was amazing in terms of guiding me. Dr. Joyce, in our first episode, we talked extensively about the drowning incident in which you essentially died for 22 minutes. Anyone who missed that full story, I encourage you to go back. Don't worry that these conversations are out of order. But that sent you into this lifelong discovery. Can you come to talk a little more personally about what you learned and continue to learn from that? Yes, it really has been over many, many, many years with being, coming aware, studying, doing this, that I've landed on metahabilitation, what I do. But it really generated from my own anxiety, I guess, fear, anger, all that of coming out of this very significant event and being told all the things I couldn't do anymore you know, not left with really much hope of a future except to live, but beyond that, not much. In fact, I always tell people now, nobody ever mentioned traumatic brain injury to me. I never heard TBI until like many years later, but that's in fact something I went through. And it was really me just crawling out of this ditch and what can I do? And when I would be confronted with people who gave me some really solid advice about things to do, I learned that, number one, this was so big, I was going to have to ask for and accept help. Mm. And number two, I had to look at the right kind of help. And so I went through all of this. As I tell people, I did the heavy lifting. I looked at it from my own point of view. It forced me. I don't want to even say it motivated me. I think this forced me into saying we cannot look at trauma in only a negative realm. It is there. I went through it. People go through it. But there is life after. And what are we going to do with that? And how are we going to help people process that, promote it to be more productive? So that really got me going. And I then not only created, again, the word, the stages, and whatever, but in the aftermath too, I was given an assignment when I became a faculty at Sac State to teach an intro course in neuroscience. And that was just like, oh my gosh, look what the brain does. That just gave me all that information. And then a colleague of mine started looking at you know, teaching me about genetics and epigenetics and all that. So all of this came around just to support 
what I'd already been saying and doing. It just was that added support, looking at trauma in a more balanced view, engaging with it purposefully, changes you on a cellular level. And that is the beauty of how this all structures itself. These are not just good ideas. Doing things in this manner influences you deeply. You are a university professor and a faculty member. You mentioned teaching. You're in the School of Nursing at Sac State and have been since 2005. You finished your master's and then earned your ED after your death experience. Mm -hmm. And then Medahab was created. But did you come to realize at some point, wait, I've been using all of this myself. I went through all of this myself, kind of self-directed and organically the way so many people I've talked to have. Yeah. I think I started becoming aware of that maybe, especially during my master's work, because I was very curious. Like I said, you know, you go through these pretty deep valleys of depression and anxiety and fear and all that. And I was just so interested if other people had done it. I kind of found out that information. And then I kind of put things on hold in terms of my academic work because as this little voice in my head one time said, you know, you weren't resuscitated to work more. So when I completed my master's and everything, I thought I have children to raise. And so I worked part-time and did that. But this concept never left me. And so when it was like once that seed in your brain is going, I'd read a book, like I said, or see a movie or whatever, and I'd go, there it is. There it is. I'm not sure what it is, but there it is. You see it all the time where people do that. So I was in my late 40s when I decided to go back and get my EDD, and I just thought, you know, I think I was 48 when I went back to get my doctorate. I knew it was going to be four years, and I thought, I'm going to be 52 anyway. I might as well be 52 with the doctorate, and I really wanted to study that, and that was that was it. That opened everything up for me. That just really generated a very robust intellectuals, actually spiritual understanding of this process that just has not left me for the last two decades. Your master's and then your doctorate, you keep referencing this new way of thinking, this new perspective. But when you describe the negative messages that you got, wasn't that in general the old model for recovery and what you call restoration, wasn't that pretty common to be told what your limitations would be so that you didn't get your hopes up too high when your life was so different? Yes, I'm shaking my head in front of you going, yeah. In fact, when I talk to different physicians about that, that is precisely one of the things that they have a fear of, that they're giving somebody this information that they may never get to. And false so they're hope. that thank you, the false hope of getting there. They don't want to presume that. Interestingly enough, though, I will tell you, I put together a virtual conference for cancer. And we had different physicians and therapists never talk about that. And one of the physicians who talked about, he was a cancer surgeon. And he, in his talk, he said, you know, I have to say, you know, and surgeons are, 
I guess it sounds kind of crazy, but pretty cut and dry. But they are. You know, they're really going there. And he said in his talk, though, that he had seen over time the patients who held out the most hope and were most optimistic, he identified them as doing better. Mm. So I think we have to measure potential outcomes with reality. But here's the other thing, as Dr. Richard Tedeschi, when I spoke to him personally about this, he said, I know you have and I have and other people have seen people blow way past expectations and we see that more than once. So the capacity is there. How that generates That's what we have to really uh, foster in families, survivors, or whatever to do that because it's there. You work and have worked extensively one-on-one with people and talk to people about their stories. How do you assess or observe even someone's potential for growth? Is that even a right question to ask? That is a right question to ask. One of the things that I really emphasize in my work is I never stage people. I never give them any assumptions in advance. More than anything, they'll sit with me and I'll say, tell me your story. That's all I'll do. Tell me your story. And as they're telling their story, I might have some probative questions, but pretty much I let them go open-ended. And I'll talk about how they grew up, and we talk about that. And I'll be able to identify certain aspects within their story that I will say, when I have heard people who have done well in the aftermath of adversity, challenges, or trauma, they have told me that you said this, you said this, you said this, and I hear that in your story. So I want us to focus on that now. There are three things that I'll hear, and I really do know people will do well after. First thing, they will talk about being hopeful. I have hope. The second thing is they have accepted help Mm. and gone through it. And clearly, the third thing, without question, they've identified a purpose. And when I hear those three things in their stories, I always say, it's going to be tough, but you have the background to successfully navigate yourself through this. Aren't those the hallmarks of living successfully, period, having hope and optimism about life, being willing to accept help, team up, partner up, work with others, and then finding your purpose. That, that's like the magic formula, I think, for thriving in life. Yes, but what's really great is people sometimes don't recognize that. And when you point it out, look it, you have that, Oh, oh, I see this because most recently I have been able to work with a group of women who have experienced domestic violence and sex trafficking. And so I implement the MetaHab series of workshops. That's one way to implement it. I do a series of workshops with these women. And we just met last night. 
And before we end our workshop for that day, I will say, okay, when we end up, I want everybody to give me one sentence on a takeaway that you have from what we've been doing. And last night, almost to every one of them, they said, not only being grateful, but I feel empowered. I feel empowered. And that to me is, again, I say, this has already been in you. I'm not teaching you anything. I'm just helping you uncover, recognize what is already in you. So it's there. Take control, make good choices, and keep moving forward. That's such a gratifying part of this, to see people self-discovery of their self-efficacy, of their power, of their ability to make choices and take control. Pretty powerful. Have you ever suffered a traumatic event? Do you feel you've been able to grow from it? Get through it. If you would like to learn more about what it takes to grow from adversity, attend the full-day conference on the science and practice of post-traumatic growth April 29th at Sacramento State University's Harper Alumni Center from 8.30 to 4 p.m. A panel of experts will present tactics and tools to transform adversity and trauma into confidence and strength through the development of resilience, compassion, and post-traumatic growth. Hear Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn address her course, Metahabit Sac State, and learn from the presentation of keynote speaker Charles Clark, one of the fastest men in the world. As a mindset expert, he'll teach you how to use adversity to build greater strength, success, and fulfillment. To register, visit metahab.com. That's metahab.com to register for the science and practice of post-traumatic growth at Sac State, April 29th. Live your life better turning trauma into growth. You're listening to Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn talk about a recovery system called Metahab. I'm Beth Ruyak, and in the field of trauma recovery, there is emerging science, there is new data, there is so much to learn. Let's review those steps, Dr. Joyce, of Metahab, the one through six stages Mm -hmm. that um, you've identified that so many people have walked their way through. Perfect. So again, stage one, acute recovery. That's a survival stage. Stage two is the turning point, that critical decision to move forward. Stage three, that drives you into stage three, which is a focus on treatments, both traditional and complementary. That's a very busy time, then brings you into stage four, a time to reflect with adaptation and acceptance for now. Sometimes you need to just take a little breather there. And then you've you've reflected, you've accepted, adapted, whatever. Then you reintegrate. You get back into life, reintegration, at some fashion, some form. And then over time, and this is a never-ending stage, you can go through this, All the, is meta-habilitation, taking on the future, your future. And once you understand this system, it is a system that can be utilized 
over and over and over again, even when you're going through adversities or annoyances or whatever, you go revisit these stages and it'll take you through a way, a mechanism to move forward. You lived through a powerfully traumatic experience, but you've also mentioned that annoyances and challenges and the pandemic, for example, all kinds of experiences come in and out of our lives that can walk us through these stages. So is there someone that MetaHab is specifically geared to? Is it more targeted to a certain level of trauma impact? No. And that's also a great question. And when I, you've mentioned that I am a professor at Sac State and one of the courses that I devised and teach is called Traumatology, an Introduction to Post-Traumatic Growth. And I work with our students and I say, I'm not here to measure or to identify who can or cannot. I have adopted a very strict core value that anybody can do this. If guidance is provided. And here's the other thing too. If some of you out there could be aware of what a bell-shaped curve looks like. So you look at a bell-shaped curve. And one of the things I say on each end of those bell-shaped curves are extremes. You're going to get one extreme where if you do nothing, these people are just going to metabilitate on their own because that's just how they're uber geared. And then on the other, you could do everything in the world. And there are just some people who the trauma was so overwhelming or the chronicity of it, it was so chronic or whatever. It's just you're hoping more than anything to help them manage their life to understand it. Most of us fit within the middle of that bell-shaped curve. Most of us fit in where we absolutely, without question, have the capacity on all sorts of levels to do this. But it is the awareness, the engagement, and the process that brings us forward. So, our systems were set up to do this. You wouldn't be this age if you didn't have those systematic capacities. So you look at your immune system, your cardiovascular system, your respiratory system, your muscular, all those systems are not there just to kind of keep you alive. They're there because they like to be pushed at. They like to be engaged because that makes them bigger, better, and stronger. That, in fact, is what challenges, adversities, and even trauma does. Your system is geared to deal with that. You're making me think about building resilience, Mm -hmm. that process of building. You work in a field where there are discoveries and then there are peer reviews, and there are tests to your research. So can you be frank about what some of the challenges to your work have been and what some of those messages of either questioning, doubt, or out-and-out refuting have been? Yeah. Well, there's no question that I've been pushed up against. More than anything, people just, a lot of times, and I have developed a sincere appreciation for people who for whatever reason, just are not geared to this mindset. And they'll push back at me that just because you say that doesn't mean, and I didn't see this and my dad, and I go, that's okay. That's okay. Maybe it's not the time for you to hear this message, maybe whatever. So I'll be pushed up against it with that. 
A very interesting thing, though, is I've been dealing with this, like I said, for, gosh, my doctorate I finished in 2005. And so I've been dealing with this for a lot. And I have had discussions on many levels with different physicians. And at first, they're the ones that said, well, no, and, you know, no, I don't think, and a lot of Mm people. And over the last decade, you have seen, I have seen a shift and how they're more embracing this idea. And I'm so glad I'm alive to see that because it was really pushed against. Now, one of the things that they came to me about, and I agree with them on this, that this needed to be studied and there needed to be research behind some of the comments or some of the or the stages, et cetera, that I was coming against. And they're absolutely right. If you don't have that science support behind what you're doing, then you just become a person who had an experience and, oh, I like to do this. That's not safe. That's not, what I want to say, um, well, validated on right, some level. Right. And um, it's not it, it's not the way that not only as a person who went through this, but as a clinician and as a scientist, I can't just put this out. I have to listen to what other people say and how they pushed me. I went through my own Metahab process with Metahab, basically, mm-hmm. because they pushed me to say, well, I'll do this, but I need to see some data. I need to do that. So I had to start incorporating whenever I would use this system. I incorporated data around that and have many publications for that. And yeah, so it's a good thing that I was challenged like that. Not taking anything away from the evidence and the data, I do really love the befores and afters, the story of the event that created trauma and the where is that person now. Mm -hmm. And in, well, both of your books, there are those kinds of examples. So now you've written these two books, you have a number of articles, presentations, conference and events, your own conference and a podcast series. What's ahead? And I say that personally and professionally. So what's ahead in your work? And what do you think is ahead in your own ongoing recovery? Well, I have created some really fun things to do. (laughs) One of the things that I'm very excited about doing is it is super important for me to get this message out. And there's a variety of vehicles to get this message out. Some of them can be these professional publications and the books, but I love creatively doing this, so I'm working on a play. Oh. So I'm working on a play that, you know, will be about survivor stories, but the process, and it's a little bit of um, fun and a little bit of, you know, anxiety around that because it's all these different emotions you go through. So I'm working on a play about your that. own anxiety in this process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Is that exactly. You're being very cautious about it, but yeah. <laughs> well, and that's another, I mean, talk about bringing that on is I really wanted to do that, but I realized I don't know enough to do this. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to learn all about it, I brought people on board who know already how to do this. And so we're doing that. The other thing that I'm very, very focused on is getting different 
areas to be using the MetaHab system. And there's only one of me. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to train clinicians to implement this because it should not just be me. It should be other clinicians who can go out and utilize this in a variety of settings. And so right now, I'm very engaged with using, as I said, this group of women who have gone through domestic violence. I've used it with nurses and other clinicians because to back up, when I understood it from an individual survivor's basis, that was important. But I have done some postdoctoral work and looked at vicarious and secondary trauma survivors as well as communities' responses to trauma. And you can see them going through these stages as well. So I want to work with first responders. I've done work with veterans, all sorts of areas. But more than anything, I really want to train the trainers. I want to get that going. The other thing that's been coming to me, which is fantastic, is other students who are doing their doctoral research and coming to me to use MetaHab in their research. And that is fantastic because then that generates a body of knowledge and data that will either really support it or say, you need to rethink this or whatever. So I'm really working with students who want to implement this in their own research. So what about that meta window, you being (laughs) meta with yourself as you continue to recover? Yeah. It's so funny that, you know, I am older now and I have decided because I have six grandchildren, I have a lot of fun and interesting things I'm involved in. I am a part-time faculty now, but I've had time, you know, going back to stage four, adapting and adjusting to part-time and reflecting. And there is no question, like, I cannot give this up. One of my Dear colleagues, Dr. Bridget Parsh, when I was wanting to write my first book, she's the one that said, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. Yeah, 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 I'll do that. And she would come to me almost in a week. How's that book coming? And I said to her, this is my first book, Turning Tragedy into Triumph. One time she said, I go, you know, Bridget, I just, I don't know if I'm actually a good enough writer, if I'm smart enough to do this. And I just, you know, and she very gently sat down next to me and said, okay, first of all, you are good enough. You're better than good enough. Number two, you're really annoying. You're really annoying. And this to me is kind of what is my meta part. She said, you found out information people need to know. You found a system. People need to know this. Yeah, how can you just hold on to it for yourself? So that's why, to me, I don't want this just to live in me. I want this to be really taken out into the community and to be used and to be excited about. Sort of like the idea when people go, well, does money make you happy? Well, the answer to that is yes, if you do two things with it, if you use it on experiences and you give it away. So... This is what makes me happy, to give away the information I have. So you're almost cueing me to say back to you your own words. (laughs) Come on, Dr. Joyce, you got this. (laughs) Keep going. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. That is my key word. I love that. In fact, I talked about this in my second book, Anatomy of a Survivor, and I talk about this with my students all the time. When you get these wonderful students who are so nervous and worried and anxious about everything, and I sit down with them and I just say, tell me your story. And I will hear these crazy, amazing stories of resilience and survival from these students. And then when they're finished, I look at them, I go, why are you worried about that paper? You got this. You've absolutely got this. You just need to put it into action in this way or that way. But yeah, it's amazing to see that. She is an original, the one and only Dr. Joyce (laughs) Michael Flynn. Good luck. Keep going. I hope we have a chance to have a conversation like this again. Oh, we will. Thank you. And thank you. A shout out to Beth, Beth Ruick, who was so lovely to take this journey with me on these podcasts. You've interviewed me before, and I actually self-selected to ask you to be part of this because you are back at you of one of a kind. So thanks, Beth. All right. Thank you to all of you for joining us and for listening to special episode number two, MetaHab at Sac State. Of course, we got to end with your mantra. Go for it. Go for it, Dr. You got this. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a general discussion of the topic presented which may or may not apply to the individual listener. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the interviewer or guest. It is not intended to provide and is not a suitable substitute for professional care by a doctor, therapist, mental health professional, or other qualified medical professional.